Happy Friday. Welcome to the Vince Coakley Radio Program. Boy, does it feel good to say that. I hope you have a sense of anticipation this morning. Ahead to a weekend of relaxation. Just time with family, friends, whomever. A lot to talk about during the course of the broadcast today, of course. One of the big stories dominating the news, Hunter Biden, he has been indicted again. New federal tax charges. We'll talk about what this is about. Also, the associated questions about what will happen with this possible impeachment process. Closer to home, I don't know about you. Have you noticed more people seem to be wearing masks again? I... As soon as the mask season, the mandates were over, especially with air travel, I was done with masks. And I have no intention of wearing them unless I have to. But I see people all the time, more and more people who stopped wearing them are wearing them again. Well, what's one of the reasons? It seems like a lot of people are sick. What do they have exactly? Most of the time, it's not COVID, thank goodness. But we'll talk about what is in the air that is making so many people sick during this season. We'll also address history that has been made by our vice president. She's accomplished something no vice president has done in nearly 200 years. We'll tell you what that accomplishment is. This is Friday, which means we have faith Focus Friday, at least one of the elements will be a very brief line from a friend of mine. It's very brief, very concise, but very profound because a lot of people have taken something very simple and made it very unnecessarily complicated. Well, that's the reverse of what we will do here during the course of the broadcast today. And as always, your inputs, welcome. Ideally, this is a conversation, an opportunity for us to interact together. And that we will do. I want to begin with a couple of positive items that are definitely praiseworthy from my perspective. As you know, I mentioned earlier The concern that we've had, justifiably so, there's always been a need for concern about COVID. But one of the things that was done during the past few years is we had what I consider to be totalitarian efforts to control people's behaviors by mandating shots. I believe this was Profoundly un-American on every level. And especially this action taken against those serving in the military. The Hill reports defense bill orders Pentagon to review reinstatement of troops fired for COVID-19 refusal. Congress, in a draft version of the annual defense bill, has directed the Pentagon to review the reinstatement of U.S. troops who were discharged for refusing the COVID-19 vaccine. The provision included in the compromised version of the NDAA, that's the National Defense Authorization Act, 
as reached by negotiators in the Democratic-controlled Senate and Republican-controlled House and released on Thursday. The NDAA orders the Defense Department to consider reinstatement of the request of a service member who is discharged and, if reinstated, should define the period of the individual's time away from service as a period of inactivation. Now, the Senate added a secondary provision that requires those seeking reinstatement to have before submitted a request for religious, administrative, or medical exemption. Now, lawmakers also included an amendment to create an investigatory board that will review cases of service members who were discharged for refusing the COVID-19 vaccine. Other amendments require the Pentagon to communicate the path to be reinstated to COVID-related discharged troops and the Defense Department to conduct a study of potential health consequences to service members who got the vaccine. The COVID-19 provisions were a priority for House Republicans, and I commend those House Republicans who persevered and probably were the primary people who pushed for this. I doubt very seriously of very many people in the Senate were involved in this in terms of leading the charge. Last year's NDAA forced the Pentagon to rescind a COVID-19 vaccine mandate that had been in place but did not touch on reinstatement, and that sets up this year's clash. The mandate it covered the entire armed forces, including the National Guard and Reserve, and troops who did not comply faced a range of punishments, including loss of days accrued toward retirement, loss of pay, and dismissal. I am a person who believes that this treatment of our military personnel was profoundly reprehensible, inexcusable. But I'm glad to see that it appears there is a path to restore what has been stolen from these these folks who have served this country honorably. And frankly, have been treated treated like crap by politicians, from my perspective, using extra constitutional authority. I would love to get your thoughts on this particular story. Do you agree that these troops should be reinstated and everything should be done to make them whole now that this vaccine mandate is gone. Thank goodness. Back on the Friday edition of the Vince Coakley Radio Program. 20 minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock, let's go out to a call from Catherine. Good morning, Catherine. Welcome. Good morning. Are you able to hear me all right? I've got you loud and clear. Okay, good. Well, um, I just wanted you to know, I listen to you um, fairly often, and I appreciate your Christian perspective and, um, and and a lot of other things about you, Vince. And I actually have met you once or twice at a, a party or something. But Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, but um, I have to disagree with you about the COVID vaccine for the military. 
And the reason is that I um, remember speaking once to someone in the military, and she said they have to have, like, 16 different shots that, to just to start off with. <laughs> and um, I don't know what they're all for, but I know that they get sent different places. You know, they may have to go to Arabia, Africa, or even Asia, where COVID was very prevalent. And you can't have somebody saying, a particular soldier saying, well, wait a minute, I'll take 14 and 16, but I won't take the 15th vaccine or shot. And, I, you know, we... You're concerned about sense? discipline, that there has to be a sense of uniformity and and uh, following the chain of command, right? Well, but it's also for their protection. And, you know, like, I rem- I'm a actually a registered nurse. 97, 98% of the people in the ICU with COVID did not have the vaccine. Right. So, you know, it, you, you can't have people saying, well, I'll... I'll you know, I may be going to be shipped someplace or, you know, you, I don't know. You don't know where I might have to go. And you know that it's best for everybody to have these shots. But I'm going to, you know, refuse this particular one. That doesn't make any sense to me that people should think that's okay. Okay. I understand your perspective. And it's uh, well-reasoned. Um I understand where you're coming from. I very much appreciate your call and look forward to hearing from you again sometime. There's a place for respectful disagreement. Where I have struggled particularly on this issue is the process by which this was done. I think a lot of authority was usurped state level, local level, federal level. And I think if this kind of behavior is allowed to continue, I think any kind of real or perceived emergency can be the grounds on which very, very dark things can be done. That's my broader concern. But Not everyone agrees on that, and I fully understand. The other positive thing, and I think this is a good thing, North Carolina Department of Transportation voted yesterday to rename an I-77 interchange in honor of Golden State Warriors NBA star and Davidson alum Stephen Curry. There was some controversy about this for a while. The vote took place 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon. The DOT held this meeting. One nay vote could have actually prevented the renaming of I-77 interchange at Griffith Street after the NBA star. Town of Davidson commissioners had voted on renaming Exit 30 after the former Davidson College athlete and Charlotte native, except for one Tracy Brandon. Though the vote technically passed, an NCDOT spokesperson told Queen City News it doesn't bode well for the naming. NCDOT's current policy states a local government must unanimously pass a resolution in a public forum for a naming application to move forward in the process. Before becoming a four-time NBA champion with the Golden State Warriors, 
Curry put Davidson College into the spotlight in 2008 when he led the Wildcats to the Elite Eight. During his tenure, he also became Davidson men's basketball's all-time leading scorer. Brandon said of the historically African-American part of town, when it comes to naming things in the West Davidson community, it's important we recognize the heritage of people that made contributions to the town and not just the college. It's one of the concerns I have. There's a disconnect between Davidson College and the town. There's some efforts being made to bring the two together. Nonetheless, this has passed. Now, Brandon goes on to say, she mentioned the exit signs for Griffith Street. Don't mention the college. And that should be addressed instead. There's a sign with Davidson College about a half mile back along I-77. Davidson College Athletics Director Chris Clooney, who also played basketball at the school, shared his excitement on X for the decision. What an especially great day to be a Wildcat and part of the town of Davidson community. I think this is absolutely awesome. It's kind of interesting to me as I think back to the time when Stephen Curry was at Davidson. I was in television at the time. And it's just amazing to think all that has happened with this young man, all of the the success that he has experienced. And I think this is a well-deserved honor. Well, Vince, do you want to know uh, how old I was when he was making his magical run through the tournament? Let me guess. You weren't born yet. No. Oh, come on. Give me a little more credit than that. <laughs> it was, what, 2008, right? Yes. Uh, yes. So I would have been 11. So 11. come on. I had 11 whole years on this planet. Okay. So, uh, I'm, I'm basically basically right up there with you guys. Okay. Well, I, I I appreciate that. That makes me feel a little bit better to know at least you were born. Yep. I got to watch it. I saw it happen. I saw it happen live. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Absolutely awesome. A great story for sure, all the way back to the time at Davidson and certainly now uh, with his exploits in the NBA, and it gets better and better. Still to come on the broadcast, we will delve into the new indictment against Hunter Biden. What does this mean? Does this put more pressure on the president? We'll talk about this and the possibility of impeachment. This and much more as we continue our Friday broadcast of the Vince Coakley radio program. Our phone number is 704-570-1110. Back on the Vince Coakley radio program. Big story the last 24 hours. Hunter Biden back in the news. He has now been officially indicted. Nine tax charges adding to gun charges in a special counsel investigation. Just as an aside, I'm kind of wondering if there had not been public pressure brought to bear on this and the whistleblowers coming out. Do you think this would have happened? I have serious doubts. Nonetheless, indicted nine tax charges in California with the special counsel investigation of the business dealings of President Joe Biden's son intensifying against the backdrop of the 2024 election. The new charges filed yesterday, three felonies, six misdemeanors. In addition to federal firearms charges in Delaware, alleging Hunter Biden broke laws against drug users having guns in 2018, they come after the implosion of a plea deal over the summer 
that would have spared him jail time. Putting the case on track to a possible trial as his father campaigns for re-election. Special counsel David Weiss said in a statement, Hunter Biden spent millions of dollars on an extravagant lifestyle rather than paying his tax bills. The charges are centered on at least $1.4 million in taxes Hunter Biden owed during the period between 2016 and 19, a period where he's acknowledged struggling with addiction. The back taxes have since been paid. Now, if convicted, Hunter Biden, 53-year-old Hunter Biden, could face a maximum of 17 years in prison. And the special counsel probe is not over yet. It's still open. Hmm. Abby Lowell, who is the defense attorney for Hunter Biden, says Weiss essentially bowed to Republican pressure in this case. (laughs) Chris writing in saying Hunter Biden trial is a waste of taxpayer money. Daddy will simply pardon him. I tell you what, there is something risky about that. Because as long as there's some question about the possibility of Joe Biden being implicated, this will look very messy. And this looks more and more like Watergate if you do something like that. At least it should. Abby Lowell saying in a statement based on the facts and the law of Hunter's last name was anything other than Biden. The charges in Delaware, not California, would not have been brought. The White House declining to comment on the indictment, referring questions to the Justice Department or Hunter Biden's personal representatives. The charging document filed in California, where he lives, details spending on drugs, strippers, luxury hotels and exotic cars. In short, everything but his taxes. And coming at a time, congressional Republicans pursue an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, claiming he was engaged in influence peddling scheme with his son. The House expected to vote next week on formally authorizing that inquiry. But AP reports no evidence emerged thus far to prove Joe Biden, his current or previous office, abused his role or accepted bribes. The questions have arisen about the ethics surrounding the Biden family's international business. And on that subject of impeachment, on the very same day of this indictment, House Republicans unveiled a resolution to formalize their impeachment inquiry into President Biden, a move aimed at giving the GOP-led committees more firepower to look into his family's business dealings as lawmakers search for evidence of wrongdoing. Formalizing the impeachment investigation, which has been underway for months, could throw more legal weight behind subpoenas as Republicans on the House Oversight, Ways and Means, and Judiciary Committees seek documents and testimony. This 14-page resolution lays out rules for public hearings and directs the committees to produce a public report with their findings. The impeachment inquiry strengthens our hand when we go to court against the administration or anyone who refuses our subpoena. That's according to committee chair James Comer of Kentucky from the House Oversight Committee. So what is this all about? Well, Republicans have been trying to show Mr. Biden was enriched by his family's foreign business dealings. 
and that he accepted bribes. So far, no evidence produced that the president engaged in any wrongdoing. The House Rules Committee said it will consider the resolution on Tuesday, teeing this up for a potential vote on the House floor before lawmakers leave Washington December 14th for the holidays. The House Speaker Mike Johnson argued earlier this week formalizing the inquiry was a necessary step because of stonewalling out of the White House. What a surprise. Mr. Johnson saying they're refusing to turn over key witnesses to allow them to testify as they've been subpoenaed. They're refusing to turn over thousands of documents for the National Archives. And Johnson says this is not a political decision, but it's a legal decision. And he further clarifies, this is not a vote to impeach President Biden. This is a vote to continue the inquiry of impeachment, and that's a necessary constitutional step. And he says, I believe we'll get every vote that we have. Whether someone is for or against impeachment is of no import right now. You have to have the evidence first. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced the impeachment inquiry in a last-ditch effort to appease conservative detractors back in September. That's one ultimately proved futile when he was ousted just weeks later. But the full House never voted to authorize the probe, as it had in previous impeachment investigations. The lack of a formal endorsement by the House raised questions about the legitimacy of this effort, concerns that Republicans are now hoping to address through this vote, as we mentioned, that's coming up on Tuesday. I'd love to know what you think about this indictment against Hunter Biden. Uh, is there a sense of relief that finally something is actually being done here? You know, one of the questions you have to ask, what in the world took so long? But the other questions raised here, do you agree with what I said, raising questions as to whether this indictment would have even happened without public pressure and the appointment of a special counsel? Do you think this might have been just swept under the carpet and ignored? And the other question is, do you think ultimately this is going to lead to some sort of evidence, real evidence of the president? Will he ultimately be implicated in this? We'll talk about that. Get your thoughts as we continue the broadcast. Still to come. Kamala Harris does something no president's done in nearly 200 years. We'll tell you what that is. Also, we will have a little bit later on, Faith Focus Friday, a very simple message, but I think it's very profound. We'll also talk about what's going on with these illnesses. There's so many people out there sick. What is going on? What are these things in the air? And are you one of those people wearing a mask because of your concern about these viruses and other things floating around? Back on the Vince Coakley radio program, 10 minutes before the hour, 11 o'clock, just minutes away. We have Faith Focus Friday. One of those relates to the gospel. The other relates to our involvement in politics. I think it's really interesting 
that sometimes you can say something very, very logical and sensible. And in this day and age, so many times those things are controversial. We're going to share something of that type coming up in just a few minutes. But first, we are in an unusual time in history. Because there's a very, very thin margin in the U.S. Senate. Very thin. So, the presence of Kamala Harris has created a real, a really unusual situation. And one which certainly works in the Democrats' favor. She is the person who is able to break ties And there are a number of circumstances where this happens, where it comes up 50-50 or 49-49. Who's going to break the tie? Well, it's Kamala Harris. And because of this, she has now broken a new record. This record has been in place for nearly two centuries. She cast the 32nd tie-breaking vote on December 5th eclipsing a 19th century vice president's record of 31 deciding votes. In fact, she actually put out a statement saying, I'm truly honored and proud to have been able to do this after voting to advance the nomination of Lauren Alicon for district court judgeship. John Calhoun, an antebellum era vice president, staunch defender of slavery, held the previous record for the most tie-breaking votes in the Senate. In recent years, vice presidents have lodged significantly less tie-splitting votes. Former Vice President Mike Pence had 13. And before him, former Vice President Joe Biden had zero, none. Vice Presidents Dick Cheney, Al Gore, Dan Quayle, and George H.W. Bush all cast either no or single-digit tie-breaking votes. Harris, though, has repeatedly been tasked with breaking deadlocks in the Senate, which has been closely divided between Democrats and Republicans currently. There are 48 Democrats, 49 Republicans, three independents in the Senate. But of the independents, two, Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Angus King of Maine, caucus with the Democrats. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema left the Democratic Party in 2022, becoming the Senate's third independent. Most of Harris's tie-breaking votes have been over the nominations of federal office holders, but others have been on signature pieces of legislation promoted by the Biden administration, including the American Rescue Plan Act, which provided $1.9 trillion in economic relief during the COVID-19 pandemic. She also cast the tie-breaking vote over the Inflation Reduction Act, which lowered prescription drug prices and promoted investment in clean energy, among other things. Without Harris's vote, Chuck Schumer says we wouldn't have had the Inflation Reduction Act, which, by the way, did not reduce inflation. It probably promoted inflation. Nitwits. He goes on, we wouldn't have had the American Rescue Plan, wouldn't have had so many of the good judges and appointees we've had. (laughs) Before awarding Harris a golden gavel for her efforts, Schumer adding, it's very appropriate that Harris cast the tie-breaking vote for federal judges because two-thirds have been people of color and two-thirds have been women. 
Isn't that just wonderful? Nothing so much about their competence, but the important thing is they, you know, check off the boxes on two important things. They have color and they're women. It's all you need to know from the Democrat Party. Charlotte Observer raises the question, why does everyone seem sick right now? There are three respiratory viruses hitting North Carolina. We talked about this a few days ago. You may have been out and about shopping. And you might have picked up an inadvertent gift in the form of a respiratory infection. Most respiratory illnesses tracked by the state are on the rise. At the moment, flu and RSV outpacing COVID-19 infections by more than 40% each. Some symptoms are common to all respiratory infections, and really, who's got the time for any of these? (laughs) Not a lot of fun. State Department of Health and Human Services reports weekly on the incidence of seven contagious respiratory illnesses, counting only positive tests reported at hospital emergency departments. By far, the most prevalent are are flu, COVID-19, and RSV. RSV, it's something where the symptoms are usually mild, cold-like symptoms. Most people recover within a week or two. But RSV can be more serious for infants and older adults, sometimes requiring hospitalization. So far, nine deaths attributed to the flu, eight adults and one child. Two of those deaths reported last week in the week ending December 5th. Hospital emergency rooms in the state reporting 1,295 new cases of flu. It's up 370 from the week before. 1,262 cases of RSV, up 263 from the week before, and 889 cases of COVID-19, up 162 from the week before. Overall, 12.4% of the visits to hospital emergency rooms the past week prompted by respiratory symptoms. That was 11.7% in the week ending November 25th. So now you know what's going on. We've got RSV, we've got flu, and we've got COVID. So behave accordingly, whatever you think is necessary in terms of things you may be taking, supplements, vitamins, whatever it is, and being cautious as you are out and about. Love to get your thoughts on this particular subject as to whether you're concerned about these things personally affecting you or your family. Hour number two is coming up straight ahead. We will delve into some very important messages for Faith Focus Friday. Stay with us. Welcome to hour number two of the Vince Coakley radio program. We told you a couple of days ago about the passing of Norman Lear coming up in a bit. We're going to share some additional information about his passing, but also talk about the impact he had in the shows. And I'd like to find out from you about your favorite shows over the years. You know, it's hard to find somebody who's had this kind of impact in terms of programming. It's uh, pretty extraordinary, all the things he was behind. Obviously, a man not uh, not unfamiliar with controversy on so many levels. 
But first, we have Faith Focus Friday. We begin with this very simple post from my friend Jose. I love this post. When I saw it, I was just, it just resonated in my heart. And I thought, wow. It's so simple, yet so profound and so necessary. Just as a preface to sharing this with you, I spent a good bit of time with a church, which I believe got lost in the words and the essence of the gospel got lost. I hope that makes sense to you. But this was my concern because it's so easy for us to get caught up in theological matters and do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not dismissing the importance of theology. But the most important thing is the relational connection with him and with each other. If we don't have that, if that gets lost, if that gets muddled, what we're involved in at that point is an academic exercise. It's a classroom. And this is what, unfortunately, a lot of churches have been turned into. Or what's the other thing that's popular these days? These uh, seminars. There's not much difference. Here's Jose's post. The simple message of the gospel is a person to know, not a doctrine to teach. Ponder that for a moment. The simple message of the gospel is a person to know, not a doctrine to teach. And I know there are plenty of people, and you know, I'm going to be honest with you. Ten years ago, me, more like 15 years ago, me, might have objected to this. Well, it's important to get your doctrine straight. I can just hear annoying me, which, for me, which frankly, I would want to give a good slap about now. Uh, because I was caught up in this vortex this vortex of arguing about words and this and that and lost the essence of why we're here it's about relational connection yes doctrine is important But we have to make sure that the relational part is front and center. Otherwise, we've missed the whole point. You can be right academically and be estranged from your Heavenly Father. That is not what he would want for us. The second post, I think, relates a lot to where many of us are and the frustration I have had in watching so many professing Christians the past few years, people I thought were kind of, you know, we're on the same page. We want to impact people in a positive way. And I feel like in many ways that's out the window. A lot of professing Christians I know are just concerned about power. How can we get into power? How can we be connected to power? And so we're just jettisoning all kinds of convictions just to make sure we have, quote, a seat at the table. I mean, do you think people like John the Baptist were concerned about a seat at the table? 
And of course, he ended up having his head served on a platter. So he made it to the table, just not the way that many of us would like to be at the table. Here's a post from Corey. This should not be controversial, but I'm finding it is in this age. So I'm going to say it, inviting questions and nuances. I'm choosing each word carefully. Christians should desire to have Christian leaders, including in government, who pursue Christian ends, policies, by righteous means. I'm all for that. Okay. Christian ends by righteous means. They need to go together. Conversely, Christians should not desire to have godless leaders who pursue unbiblical ends by either right or wrong means. So in other words, if they're trying to do something wrong, it doesn't matter how they do it. It's just wrong, period. I definitely agree with this. I think a lot of this, for a lot of Christians, has gone down the drain. Because at the top of our priorities, for too many of us, is the desire to, quote, win. And I think we have to do some serious soul-searching to ask ourselves the question, what does winning mean? You know, it kind of reminds me where you know, the question is raised, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And, and I think it needs to be understood, and I've said this before, this is not about you know, whether you're going to heaven or hell. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying in this life, if your own soul is overrun with carnality to the point you've lost your own way. Is that worth a so-called political win? Because I've seen a lot of this. People, I, I honestly can't tell you, I don't know them anymore. Because they have, I don't know what their priorities are. I really don't. Coming up on the broadcast, we're going to talk about Norman Lear his legacy. We have new information about the final moments of his life. It's really kind of moving to hear about this. Also, we'll have a little fun talking about some of the shows that he's behind, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. What are your favorite shows that you might still watch today? I mean, this is totally in a different category, and this is not a Norman Lear-connected show at all. I like watching old television shows. One of the latest binge I've gotten onto lately is watching Bewitched. I love that show. It's absolutely hilarious. And one of my favorite characters on there is uh, the, the nosy neighbor. Oh, my goodness. She is just, uh, it just absolutely cracks me up, the, the way they screw with that poor woman's mind. Uh, and I think she won an Emmy for that Posthumously, I think she won an Emmy for her role on that show. But anyway, point of that being I love old shows. And some of the shows that we'll talk about, Norman Lear connected shows, we will discuss. And in case you'd like to rediscover those now, tell you where you can find those. Back on the Vince Coakley radio program, 
20 minutes after the hour of 11 o'clock. You know, it's pretty amazing when you think of people who've made significant contributions to entertainment, like this show that so many of us enjoyed for so many years. Take it away. Deluxe apartment in the sky. Remember this particular song and the show associated with it? The Jeffersons. You know, I still, I mean, I think of some of the funny interactions on shows. One of them, the interaction between Florence and George. I mean, those are just classics. I also think back to Sanford and Son. Remember? Aunt Esther and Fred Sanford. Oh, my goodness. It's just gold. We'll get a load of this. Entertainment's weekly reports at the very end. Uh-oh, Chris is telling me to keep your day job. Oh, my goodness. You don't like my singing? <laughs> <laughs> Little does Chris know, you can keep singing at your day job, and there's nothing he can do about it. <laughs> uh, hey, at the same time, I do not want to be in a place where I'm the only one listening. <laughs> there's no danger of that. Uh, Always inter- a balance to strike. Yes, exactly. Entertainment Weekly reports Norman Lear's family, what they did in his final moments. This is so cool. They sang theme songs from his sitcoms in his final moments. The TV legend's son-in-law recalls singing the themes of All in the Family and the Jeffersons to Lear as he passed peacefully in his home. This is the way Entertainment Weekly describes this. Before the late great Norman Lear moved on up to a deluxe apartment in the sky, his family gave him a proper send-off by serenading him with the theme songs from some of his beloved sitcoms. The TV legend who created the Jeffersons, Maude, One Day at a Time, All in the Family, and more classic shows. He passed away on Tuesday at his home in Los Angeles, the ripe age of 101, surrounded by his loved ones in his final moments. Dr. Jonathan LaPook. Lear's son-in-law and a chief medical correspondent for CBS News says Lear's family made sure to give him a soft landing for the plane. The family was gathered around the bed. He was very comfortable, resting peacefully. And we did what we knew he would want us to do. We were singing songs, which he loved, and also some of the songs from his TV shows. That included the theme song of All in the Family. And when they got to the theme for the Jeffersons, the poke was overcome with emotion. You never know when these moments are going to sneak up on you. I kind of held it together. But when we were singing, moving on up to the east side, I heard myself saying to a deluxe apartment in the sky, I just lost it. Because he's going to some deluxe apartment in the sky. Of that soft landing... We wanted to give him a gentle landing and have no pain. If you were to say to someone in their 40s, how do you want to die? They'd probably say, at age 101, surrounded by loved ones, with them singing to me and laughing without any pain. That's exactly what happened. 
he had this expression, over and next, when something was over, it's over. And it's on to next. It's the best definition of living in the moment. It's very interesting, the story done by the LA Times. They came up with a list of the seven essential Norman Lear TV shows and where to watch them. There are times I try to figure out, you know, where are some of these shows? Because they are, sometimes, it's the best entertainment around. There are new shows I like, but some of the old ones are really cool to watch and maybe watch again. There's All in the Family. That was on CBS, 71 to 79. That was revolutionary. Politics, social ills, disgust. With a bigoted, grousing, patriarch, Archie. <laughs> Boy, was that an experience. That show is on Freevee. I just found what that was recently. Actually, a friend of mine helped me discover that one. Sanford and Son, which I mentioned earlier, 1972 to 77 on NBC. Um, I told you about the conflict between Fred and Esther, Aunt Esther. And there's that line, Elizabeth, I'm coming to join you. That is available on Peacock. Maud. Never cared much for that show. Didn't do much for me. 72 to 78. The first sitcom that dared to set its story around a middle-aged, four-times-married feminist whose outspoken demeanor challenged sexist tropes of the day. Pluto TV carries that now. Good times, 1974 to 79 on CBS, a show that was dynamite. Yes, you remember that line from J.J., Jimmy Walker. Peacock carries that show now. The Jeffersons, 1975 to 1985. Boy, that was a whole lot of fun. And I love this show. This was a trend-setting show because it represented one of the few prosperous black families on network television. Upwardly mobile black family. Made their way from working-class Queens, where they were neighbors, the Bunkers, to the Tony Upper East Side of Manhattan. Yeah, this was really cool. Ten years for this show. Great run. It's available on Pluto right now. One day at a time, 1975 to 1984. I watched this for a while. It was kind of okay. The original is on Tubi. And Pluto TV rebooted the show on Netflix. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. I thought that show was stupid. It was in syndication, 76 to 77. I, I just never did get that one. <laughs> but different strokes, as they say. And actually, I do not see where this is. Where this show is available. Probably no great loss. <laughs> Whatever floats your boat, ladies and gentlemen.
But that's just a sampling. I'm very curious. Is there a show that you, you really like that still to this day that you are just absolutely, um, you know, just has implanted something in your heart and mind that this was just a really great show. You have great memories about it. Back on the Vince Coakley radio program, a couple of related stories I want to bring to your attention. And it relates to what's going on with intelligence and surveillance. Because these kinds of things, there's a pattern here, especially as it relates to government. First thing, this story reported by Breitbart. Insider blows the whistle on Cyber Threat Intelligence League domestic censorship program. Hmm. A whistleblower is reportedly brought to light startling revelations about the Pentagon's involvement in a domestic censorship program, as detailed in newly disclosed files from the Cyber Threat Intelligence League. Public reports that according to a whistleblower's files, the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, previously thought to be an independent entity, was heavily influenced by government and military personnel. This involvement far more extensive than previously known, as evidenced by Slack messages and other internal communications. The Slack channels, specifically those tagged for disinformation and law enforcement escalation, reportedly included current and former FBI employees, Michigan Cyber Command Center personnel, members of the U.S. Defense Digital Service, and representatives from at least one European government. The DDS, headquartered at the Pentagon, established in 2015, has been particularly highlighted for its role in these operations, according to the public, according to public, the latest whistleblowers file, whistleblower files reveal the organization worked with both governments and social media companies to censor Americans. The new whistleblowers files provide insight into the group's inner workings. Described as a parallel effort, neither we nor the whistleblower know what the parallel effort refers to in these new files. Eric Brogdon, a cybersecurity director for a private firm, and others appear to have attempted to interfere with so physical gatherings, with Brogdon implying he had the ability to get social media users suspended. When one member shared news about a call for anti-lockdown protests, Brogdon responded, let me see if I can get the Facebook user suspended. Then this send chills down your spine that you've got these people working behind the scenes, some of them in government, looking to circumvent free speech. And again, this goes back to the thing I've said plenty of times before, that we're at a point where the government doesn't have to ban anything. All they have to do is to get in bed with some of these tech companies and get these companies to do the dirty work for them. This is scary stuff. 
This is something from the same kind of category, and it it makes me wonder about how long Speaker Mike Johnson is going to be around pulling stuff like this. The Hill reports Speaker Johnson is taking heat from House conservatives over short-term extension of warrantless surveillance powers. How many of you are comfortable with this? I'm not. And again, this ticks me off to read this first line in this story. You know, I am so disgusted by the use of this phrase. Speaker Mike Johnson taking heat from the hard right conservative wing of his conference over the addition of a short-term extension of the nation's warrantless surveillance powers in the defense authorization bill. Who in the right mind would not have some question about the wisdom of extending this? They're trying to characterize this as an extreme, hard, right, conservative. What is that, anyway? Who is this woman? Rebecca Beisch. I'd love to call her up and ask her, what is a hard, right, conservative? In fact, I'm going to make a point here. I, I, I really do. I want to call this woman. I want to ask her, what, is, what does hard right mean? Do you even know? And I'm going to bet she has no idea. Probably clueless. I'm making a note to myself here. Because whenever this happens, I'd love to talk to these reporters. What journalism school did they go to and what? See, again, how do they make these determinations of who is hard right and who's not? Gosh, drives me up the wall. Anyway, point being, these conservative lawmakers have lobbied against any short-term extension of Section 702, arguing its impact on civil liberties should only be considered through stand-alone legislation. Absolutely. Do not throw this in with other stuff. See, they love to throw things in in that defense authorization bill. Do you know why? Because it's a, ma- a must-pass bill. They have to pass it. So if you have something that you think might be controversial and you don't necessarily want to go on record supporting it in particular, just hide it in the defense authorization bill, and then everybody will just move on. So Mr. Johnson, not doing us any favors here. Not surprising. I had low expectations in the first place (laughs) on the Vince Coakley radio program. It's the final stretch of the Vince Coakley radio program on this Friday. Doesn't it feel good to say that? By the way, I want to remind you, John Hancock's Bikes for Kids this evening. I'll be on 627. I will be right outside WBT Studios. And we will be ready to receive your bicycle contribution. Let's do this up big this year. So hope to see some of you out there this evening. I normally don't pay a lot of attention to these celebrity stories. Like, how many of you got sick of that whole Amy Robach and T.J. Holmes story? You know, they got fired from ABC. They're basically having an affair with each other. Both of them were 
married at the time. And I don't know that I even mentioned it on the air. But I did come across a story I think is really, I think this is kind of cool. Because I, I have a, I have a heart for people going through anything. To have this kind of thing done to a spouse, it's, it's horrible. It's terrible. Not just the spouse, but the kids. It's just rotten. Going around, having your little fling, and leaving someone you made a vow to till death do us part. Well, you decided your libido was much more important than your vows. TMZ has a story (laughs) that really intrigued me about Amy Robach and TJ Holmes. Their exes are dating each other. I actually think this is kind of cool. I do. Amy Robach and TJ Holmes are going strong, and apparently their respective exes are as well. Now they're dating. Page six cites sources claiming Mary Lee Freiburg and Andrew Shue are seeing each other romantically and have been for about six months now. The outlet says the pair bonded over their divorces from the two former GMA3 co-stars who are still together. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. According to the report, they initially had the divorces and the scandal as the common denominator, but now their relationship has transcended all that messiness, and both have moved on from their broadcasting exes. It's interesting. The report goes on to dish more alleged deets about how and whether they view all of this as cheating. Merrily and Andrew also reportedly found out about Amy and TJ's romantic relationship in the summer of 2022, although the public didn't learn about it until November of that year. Now, when ABC caught wind of this, it eventually cost them their jobs. Both TJ and Amy have denied it was an affair, insisting their marriages were over before they got involved. From the sound of this new story, though, their exes seem to think that is pure BS. TJ and Amy started separate divorce proceedings last December as their relationship started to go public. Amy reportedly finalized her divorce in March. TJ appears to still be working on his own. But I think this is kind of cool. And I wish these two the best. I really do. That Mary Lee and Andrew, things work out well. And I pray for all of the children involved here that this would be a season where they would find comfort and love and stability. That is my hope for them. Time for us to take a look at the day in history. And we have a number of items to go through. Tommy, are you ready? Yeah, I'm here. We're going to try to zip through these very, very quickly. Um, some of these we will ask in question form. Uh, 1660, Ms. Norman appears as Desdemona, the first woman to take the stage during the Shakespearean era. That was 1660. 1925, the Coconuts opened by these brothers who were comedians at the time. 1925, 
Who were these brothers, these comedians? Do you want to take a wild guess? Are they the Three Stooges? No, they're the Marx Brothers. Ah. Marx Brothers. Uh, A blowout of a game, 1940. The Bears beat the Redskins in the NFL Championship 73-0. That's pretty ugly. 1941, the U.S. declares war on this country after Pearl Harbor. Hmm. Who was the country that we declared war on? What what nation attacked us on this date yesterday? Uh, I'll give a wild guess of Japan. You are correct. <laughs> You're so silly. 1976, the Eagles released this album, one of the best-selling LPs ever. It's... Uh, also, the album has a very popular song that still lives on about a place to stay in uh, a certain state here in the United States. Is the album called Hotel California? You're absolutely correct. Oh, look at me go. You're brilliant. Ancient history here, and I'm getting it. 1980, this Beatle shot outside his home in New York City, 1980. Who was it? 1980. John Lennon? John Lennon is correct. And last, 1982, did he, D.C. police shoot and kill a man threatening to blow up the Washington Monument? Crazy. That's all the time we have, folks. We thank you very much for joining us. Have yourselves a great and relaxing weekend. God bless you. Adios. Adios.